1: I'm Jason Kander.
2: And I'm Ravi Gupta.
1: And this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. Uh, This is a very exciting episode. We are joined by Edward Isaac Devere. Uh, Isaac is a staff writer for The Atlantic and its lead political correspondent. He's covered Democratic politics for 15 years, beginning in his native New York City and carrying him through the Obama White House and then across 29 states during the 2020 election cycle. His reporting has won the White House Correspondents Association's Merriman Smith Award. For Excellence And the Society of Professional Journalists Daniel Pearl Award For Investigative Reporting Among other awards But the biggest thing is uh, He has written the book That you have seen In all the headlines lately uh, Battle for the Soul And it is all about The campaign to unseat Trump successfully And the primaries And everything that happened Over the last few years It's gotten lots of excerpts Have trended on Twitter And made it into all sorts of different uh, Pieces on the news uh, And he is agreed to join us We are so fortunate. Isaac, good to see you, man. And you have
0: agreed to have me. I'm excited to be here, so thank you.
1: (laughs) Ravi, what's going on this week?
2: Well, we're obviously coming off of a long weekend, uh, and (laughs) (laughs) Vice President Harris got into a bit of a controversy. I, I hesitate to even call it that, but she tweeted over the weekend that we should enjoy the long weekend, and Nikki Haley retweeted it, saying that Harris was unprofessional and unfit, presumably because she didn't mention the troops and the real meaning behind Memorial Day. And just there was an avalanche of criticism coming from the right. Jason, you served. uh, How offended are you? And should we begin the impeachment proceedings now for uh, Vice President Harris?
1: You know, I was deeply offended while enjoying my long weekend on vacation. No, I mean, this was so stupid. And but... I think we have to talk about it because it leads into what is a larger strategy right now um, by the Republicans, right, which is to go back to the well to check their traps and to do the whole we are more patriotic than you thing. Uh, In fact, we are so patriotic that we want to overthrow the government uh that is the real measure of their patriotism um isaac you you uh, seem to take issue with some of what tucker carlson had uh, to say about uh,
0: yeah this. i mean look it, i i think harris is it, it's it's the things that you're talking about jason it's also some stuff that i've written about that she is an easier target for republicans than joe biden has proven they, they've Uh, Republicans in Washington keep talking about how it must be Biden's staff that's really leading the way on things because they can't seem to hit things on him with a woman, with a woman of color. It has proven easier for them to attack her. They've gone after her on the border, uh, particularly. And, you know, Nita Dunn who's one of Biden's top advisors, said to me a few weeks ago, I don't remember the Republicans saying it was Mike Pence's job to fix the border, but they do say that about Harris. But this tweet, it it was there is no one in america who doesn't think of memorial day weekend as a long weekend and there it's was a, literally
1: it, a long weekend i mean right. that's literally <laughs> the definition of a three-day weekend
0: yes it's the beginning of summer the unofficial it's all that stuff it's also uh, there was another tweet from her respecting the troops and thanking them for their the, service and remember the ones who died but i do think that like uh, that memorial day weekend ended with tucker carlson sitting at his home studio in relaxed clothing at the end of a long weekend and making a comment about how the military doesn't protect america anymore yeah that is accusing it's not just not remembering the troops it's accusing them of betraying their oath of service of betraying the country that seems like more serious than a tweet that was written i hate to reveal it to your listeners but kamala harris did not type that tweet out herself some aide, low low down (laughs) in her
2: office was the one who wrote that that poor person, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I, I spent my long weekend just camping out at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, just bathing in my own tears. Uh, it seems like others had you had a different right. experience. I did it right. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I like you guys have probably, I have so many family members you served and they- like other human beings can walk and chew gum at the same time. Like We can take time off, enjoy each other's company while also paying respects to people who served. Obviously, that goes without saying. Uh, one fun pastime of people on Twitter has been finding people like Megan McCain who were so appalled by Harris's tweet, but who also couldn't be bothered to discipline themselves over the weekend. Um, You know, like she, for instance, was in Vegas, I think the next day, uh, talking about how, wow, I'm able to go to Vegas. So I just, they're not even applying the same standard to themselves, which is par for the course at this point. But Isaac, you mentioned something that gets to the deeper issue here, which is this is a coordinated series of points and attacks on Democrats. This has been going on since I was in elementary school with Dukakis. But this seems to be coming together at a time when the right wing seems to be criticizing. Biden particularly for like this wokeness in the military that they call it. And both Tucker Carlson, Ted Cruz and others on the right are, are particularly criticizing Secretary Austin and the Pentagon for a series of steps they've taken, diversity training, um, recruiting videos. There was one particular incident where uh, there was an army recruiting video where a corporal was talking about her childhood growing up with two moms and people on the right like Seb Gorka. Uh, said on his show, you are a disgrace to what it means to serve in the military at any rank. So there seems to be uh Is that a the same narrative- Seb Gorka
0: who was walking around with the insignia of a Nazi affiliated uh order from Hungary? Uh that's I believe Gorka. So. Yeah. Has I, to be a I, different I guy, right? I mean, <laughs>
2: Yeah, like you know, the same Sabgorka that that Kelly basically sent out of the White House like jazz from the Fresh Prince, you know? Uh, <laughs> that's but, a perfect uh, comparison. But uh <laughs> somehow we're in this weird universe where uh a tweet that, that fails to to mention the troops in Memorial Day is somehow unprofessional and unfit. But within the right, there's this just coordinated attack on the military. Um, and particularly the sense that there's only one profile of people that can serve in the military and that any sense of – any attempt to provide a richer, deeper narrative about those who serve is woke uh, and woke is bad. What should we make of this? I
0: mean, I think that you see a, a, a twisting of – that, that sadly has become core to the Republican political talking points. Look, like, go at it from uh, something – closely related, not the same thing as troops, but you've got to respect the police and and protect the police and all of that. And, you know, there were police officers who were attacked and died because of the riot uh, on January 6th. And uh, there is no interest in uh, looking into what happened, but there's also no, not really a lot of interest in even talking about the, those officers, you, know, you had Lisa Murkowski the day before uh, the commission was voted down by the Senate uh, standing there with the family of one of the officers. And, and yeah, it's just I think you see here this it, it becomes a convenient thing. Respect the troops, except when we're not going to respect them. And to the, those commercials, another aspect of it, I think, is trying to pretend like there aren't people in the military who have been raised by two moms there are. And that's part of what America is. Uh, It's not part of what I guess Ted Cruz wants America to be. But it's true. And a commercial like that is meant to recruit people into the military. It's meant to say it's an ad. That's what it is. Come take our thing that we're trying to sell you. And so it's trying to connect with people who have that experience and say you have a place here, too.
1: I I thought his phrasing was so interesting that you know he he said that this will turn the military into pansies. Like I don't know that corporal and I would bet thousands of dollars that she can kick Ted Cruz's ass. Like I mean it's just like it's so ridiculous. Um I mean it it's interesting to me because the energy that I get from Cruz and Carlson and all these folks who have this sort of, I don't even want to say Top Gun mentality because it looks to me like the the, the people in Top Gun ate right and took care of themselves. I, I don't know what it is. It's like stripes or something. This idea of the military uh, that is so incorrect. It, it It's the same vibe that I get from men who think that not caring at all about what's in the food that they put in their body is some sort of measure of manliness like that same vibe is the vibe I get from people who think that not caring about diversity is patriotic it makes no sense but one thing i know is that what they have in common is they both require no effort whatsoever like <laughs> that's what they have in common is they ask nothing of people who are already having nothing asked of them. They genuinely think that military leaders are being unmilitary like when they give thought to making the military more inclusive, which to me exposes how little they understand about the military because the job of a military leader is quite literally the words we were taught are mission first, people always. Like you're supposed to be looking out for your people. And it's funny to me that Cruz thinks that that's not – and that just shows that he has no flipping idea what he's talking
2: about. Right. You know, Cruz at the same time was comparing our promotional videos for our military to Russian propaganda videos for their military, basically approvingly talking about the Russians. I think it was either because of Cruz or Carlson, um, their elevation of our, our recruiting video Was so problematic that they had to disable comments on our own military recruiting video. This is how patriotic they are. But this seems to be like somehow that the Republican Party has carved out space for a fetishization of right wing dictators. This has been going on for years now. It's not just this propaganda video. Trump, you know, there's no end to the amount of clips of Trump praising Putin, all the way going back to Obama, where he said, Putin had more strength than Obama. He praised the Chinese military. He said that they didn't go far enough in Tiananmen Square. He praised Kim Jong-un. I mean, you go around the, the, the world and there's almost no dictator that they aren't in love with. And this comes on a week when Trump's former national security advisor, Flynn, openly called for a coup within the United States. So somehow we're going to wave the flag, but we're going to piss all over every institution that makes that flag meaningful. Should we invite this challenge, this patriotism challenge?
1: I'll ask Isaac, like, advise us, like, you know. <laughs> well, like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the advisor.
0: I'm the reporter. I do think yeah. from a reporter but, you know, perspective. With your,
1: with your wise, uh, your look, wise uh, approach. As a I am
0: shocked at how Democrats have continued to let Republicans be the, the patriotic ones. And, and that's not something about the last year, but we can come to the last year. It Just for the last... 30, 40 years, whatever it's been, that it's that that has set in. There are a lot of Democrats that serve in the military. One of them is sitting here in front of a mic, right? Uh, There are a lot of Democrats who've done a lot of things to invest in the military. uh, And yet it's become very much people the way that it's just conventional wisdom, right? Republicans are better for the military than Democrats. That's a failure of the Democratic Party. Now, specifically, in talking about all this stuff over the last, not even year, six months, right? how is it that Donald Trump and his supporters undermining the fundamentals of American democracy can ever be connected to patriotism? That's not to say Republicans overall aren't patriotic, but that is the essence of not being patriotic, to say that you don't believe in American democracy,
1: Yeah, no, I I completely agree. It's it's amazing how much of it comes down to imagery, right? I mean, if you put enough pictures of people in uniform on your website, and if you drape enough of your garments in red, white and blue, it's powerful imagery. And to some extent that has to be countered. But the other piece of it is, we have to lean into what we believe makes the country stronger, right? Like, If you look back at like President Obama's speech at the Edmund Pettus Bridge, where he talked about criticizing your country and wanting your country to be better, is patriotism that to me should be a central part of our message? But so should be, you know, when when General Austin gets up, Secretary Austin gets up now, and he says, "Well, look, we want the military to look both in its ranks and in its leadership more like." the country that it is protecting. That is right. But the, you got to do the next sentence too, which is, and by the way, that makes us a more effective fighting force. And you got to explain why. Like I learned in the military that a more diverse unit is a stronger unit. I mean, it gives you more perspectives. It gives you a greater ability to be effective. And I, I've taken that in a civilian life. It's not a matter of box checking. It But we got to make that point. As an aside, by the way, I think it's really funny that when they started to make that point and they actually responded to Ted Cruz, his response – this has nothing to do with anything. I just – this made me laugh. His response was that responding to him was far beneath the dignity of the United States military. (laughs) I just thought, yeah, you're right.
2: (laughs) It's true though. Yeah, I, I agree with him on that.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I do think your point on imagery is an important one. And, it, it you know, if you go back, I'm going to say something that compliments you. Uh, when you did that ad in 2016 in the Senate race where you were uh, putting the gun together. Right. The reason why that broke through is not just because it was impressive that you could do that blindfolded. It's because people were like, holy shit, a Democrat can do that. That's a Democrat with a gun. And a Democrat can do that and also talk about gun control. It's an ad that no matter what else you do in your life, you are are going to be remembered for it and that it's going to be remembered in democratic politics, I think, because it pushed so far against what people think of with Democrats. And I've been surprised, actually, at how... That hasn't been picked up more by more Democrats. You saw, like, in in the presidential race, Pete Buttigieg used to talk about. He had a very Pete Buttigieg way of doing it, where he'd say, "Like, freedom isn't just you know freedom; it's freedom to to marry who you want. It's freedom to do all these things." And uh, talked about it in terms of progressive politics. He also served himself, obviously, but that's not something that you've seen in in, in as prominent a way among Democratic politicians as as probably would serve Democratic politicians better, even though you have now uh, among a lot of the people who were elected to the house in 20 to uh, 2018, a lot of veterans, a lot of people who've really done amazing stuff and that you see how some of that uh, played out, whether that's Jason Crow from Colorado and the you know, those shots of him helping his colleagues figure out what to do when the rioters got, came toward the house chamber uh, or Ruben Gallego, who served also, who who has the story of how like he was on the, the floor of the house and telling 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 people how to use their uh, their gas masks and taking a pen uh, and saying to people, like use it as a weapon if you need to, or just how they have talked about this uh, crow as one of the impeachment managers the first time around for Trump talking about it in those patriotic terms. I think Democrats would be better served if they could figure out how to do this and not have people think like, okay, so like the Republicans are the ones with the military and the flags and all that
1: stuff. I think you're right. And I think Ruben and Jason are good examples of of folks who have have come to understand that demonstrating patriotism is not about doing republican things or saying republican things, right? Since you brought up that ad, like the reason that broke through, there are many reasons, but you know, to go a little deeper is that it was me making an argument for a progressive thing. There are a lot of a lot of Democrats had done ads featuring a gun in the past. All of those you would have thought that they were a Republican, even like Joe Manchin shooting
0: the cap and trade bill.
1: Right. right, And like, like we made decisions in that ad. One of them was even though actually what I did at the end of the ad is a functions check. And at the end of a functions check, you're supposed to dry fire the weapon. You're supposed to pull the trigger. I made the decision not to pull the trigger because that's not what I was trying to do. Right. I didn't pull the trigger. I didn't fire the weapon. And on top of that, like, I was for gun control. And the point that you're making and I agree with is we help the Republicans when we say Republican things and then say, that's going to be us being patriotic. No, we got to say democratic things and demonstrate why that is patriotism. What we're really talking about here is the difference between patriotism and nationalism, right? And really, is it even nationalism when it's an insurrection? I don't think it is. No, yeah,
2: I agree that it's that's a huge question, right? Like, what are we proud of? Before I get to that, I think it's worth mentioning that this is kind of a circular point. That they want to close off opportunity for different kinds of people to serve in the military, and that service is one of the only ways to be able to access that narrative. So a good example are we have candidates now that we wouldn't have had 20 years ago, like Chrissy Hoolihan or Alyssa Slotkin or Gina Ortiz Jones. It's not just a dude's narrative anymore. And Those are gonna be some of the most powerful candidates that we have, not just because of their identity, just but because we're opening doors to more people with more interesting things to say. But Isaac, what you were saying, which is true patriotism is defending our democracy. That's essentially what Biden said on Memorial Day. This is the narrative that he's pushing. And Jason to what you said, like the biggest threat we have is something we've talked about for a long time now, is domestic terrorism. Like our biggest threat is that deep division and violence that, you know, is happening within our borders. And that just makes the tenor of this so challenging because part of what Austin's trying to do in the Pentagon is clean it up so that we don't have people who are disloyal to the United States of America inside of the military. And that's a really hard thing to do. And it's probably something we haven't dealt with since, you know, probably the civil war. Remember the feeling you got as a kid of getting tucked into bed, or the feeling you get now in the arms of somebody you love. Safe and secure. It's a feeling of security that only comes through human connection. And that's why the people at Simply Safe Home Security are so important. You know, I have an apartment and I have Simply Safe, and I know that even just a week or two ago, somebody broke into my hallway. It's not much to imagine somebody coming up and Trying to take my stuff. And I love that Simply Safe is here to protect all my belongings and to protect me. But also uh, I just love how easy it is to activate.
1: And the thing is, Simply Safe really does make it so easy. It takes about two minutes to customize a system on their website. You can go to simplysafe.com/slash majority54. Whether it's a fire, a burglary, a medical emergency, a burst pipe, or even a problem while you're setting up the system, Simply Safe has a person with the expertise you need ready to help twenty-four-seven. And when you know there's always someone there to help, well, that's a feeling you just don't get with any old security system. So to learn more about how Simply Safe can help protect you and your family, visit SimplySafe.com/slash majority fifty four today to customize your system and get a free security camera. You also get a sixty day risk free trial so there's nothing to lose. That's simplysafe.com slash majority54. I'm one of those people who has been through therapy and I talk a lot about it. One of the reasons I do that is because I find that people have a lot of barriers to going to therapy for the first time. And a lot of those are just like, imagined conditions, like the idea that it's going to be very intimidating or overwhelming. How do they find a therapist? You know, Where do they go? What's that experience going to be like? That's why BetterHelp, our sponsor, is so great. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. They'll let you connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient, you can start communicating in under 48 hours.
2: It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. Send a message to your counselor anytime and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you could schedule a weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. So if you want to start living a happier life today, as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting... Our sponsor at BetterHelp.com/m54. Join over one million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com/m54. In this week in misinformation, we are going to talk about uh, COVID-19 and particularly this this claim that has been on the national stage since the beginning, which is that the virus originated in. A Chinese lab, and not through a wet market. Um, there's been some news this week. It seems like some prominent scientists have been calling on um, the Biden administration and all their health experts to uh, reopen, uh, or at least leave open the possibility that this claim that it was uh, born in a in a lab in China uh, that 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 there might be some credibility to that, or at least that it's plausible. Um, what should we make of of this, given that? If we're being honest, like that claim that was born in a Chinese lab was widely ridiculed, I think, on the left and um, among the media. Like, is this a dangerous point where we should probably take a step back and say, hey, like, we need to examine how we got to the point where so many of us boxed ourselves into corners on this?
1: This is a really interesting misinformation segment, right? Because this is us revisiting what we thought was misinformation and saying, Maybe it wasn't misinformation. And so, Isaac, like you report things for a living. How do you approach like, do I give credence to this? Is this real? How should we approach this sort of thing?
0: So I I should start by saying I know nothing about the origins of the virus or how any of that stuff works. It's uh, I, I, it's hard enough for me to keep up with politics. I'm not going to claim to know anything about epidemiology or virology. Uh, but look like, in general, I think that this is uh, what happened here is that there were a year ago, a year ago plus, people who wanted to push this storyline. And they had some scraps of basis for it. But for them to say now that they knew all along is also not honest, right? Um, it's that they they wanted it to be true a year plus ago, and now they're seeing evidence that maybe there's more to look into. Uh, as a reporter, I think th- there was too much of reporters of people who were supposed to be analytic about this dismissing it as completely wrong just because there were people who were pushing it for their own agenda. I think that the way to report that at the time could have been. We don't know the answers here. There's a lot that's unknown. But we do see that this is one idea that's out there. It's an idea that's being pushed by people who don't really have a lot of evidence that it's true. And that's hard. And the coronavirus overall has been really hard for reporters to cover in a way that builds trust with readers because the situation has just been changing so rapidly and the information from the people who do theoretically know what they're talking about was changing so rapidly. Oh, well, don't like don't touch your vegetables. Okay, well, you can do that, you know, all these things. And now the mask guidance from the CDC was lifted and all of a sudden people are Walking around outside without their masks on and a lot of people uh, feel weird about it and, and, and so what does that mean that we should have never been wearing masks no it means that the the science changed and changes more people got vaccinated and we have to just keep with it and hope that people can trust that the situation is changing
1: what it reminds me of actually is about two weeks before the lockdown in uh, before the lockdown last year, so like toward the end of February, uh, I was in New York and I did Stephanie Rules show on MSNBC, and I can't remember the name of the gentleman, the doctor who was seated to my left, but I remember this moment where he started talking about where things were headed. And it was like, you know, if you remember that time, whether you were like doing a hit on MSNBC or sitting around your kitchen table talking to people like the news was coming so fast and the informed opinions were coming so quickly that it was genuinely shocking And and when you would learn like what was happening, and I remember there was this moment where he was explaining what was going to happen. And Stephanie Rule and I like looked at each other off camera, like almost forgetting that we were like making a television show because what he was saying was so frightening. And we were just like, holy crap, right? And then they kicked it back to me and it was sort of, well, what's the politics of this? And what I said at the time that I think applies here was, I said, look, I have no idea what's going to happen, but this is why a president telling the truth about stuff matters. Because I said, if in two weeks, and when I said this, I thought this was a crazy thing to say. I said, if in two weeks the president needs to come out and say, we have to shut down Chicago. It would help if it wasn't someone who had been lying about everything so that people would take that order seriously, right? Well, now we know what happened, which is he didn't shut enough stuff down and everything else. But now I'm reminded of like how important it is that we have a president who has a reputation for telling the truth. Because whatever the conclusion of this investigation is, there will be just a lot more people who, when Biden says this is what we think happened, will go, that's probably what happened then, because he hasn't been lying about everything every day for years and years and years.
2: Right. and The scientists who wrote this letter in the journal Science um, are not saying that the lab leak theory is the likely scenario. They're just saying it is a plausible theory right now. It has not been knocked down. Just as animal to human theory um, has not been proven or knocked down either, and part of the issue that we're dealing with is that the Chinese government is not cooperating with investigations here, and so that's 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 what we're dealing with. And until and unless they truly open up and provide um, real access to public health experts, we're just going to have to deal with uncertainty. And so it is just as wrong to say that that lab leak theory is. Uh, impossible, as it is to say that it is likely or the only scenario from which this virus emerged
0: I think to me also there's a question of what matters and what doesn't matter about this right like it matters to find out how the virus originated uh because if it was a leak from a lab like let 's get more security on labs that are doing this um if it was about wet markets let 's figure out what to do with it, whatever it is like that it but what doesn't matter is like it doesn't change the fact that. In America and around the world, uh, the response to the pandemic was almost universally terrible. Right, uh, and that hundreds of thousands of people died in America and more around the world because governments didn't get it right. And there is a an, an element of people talking about this which is meant to say let's just talk about this fun uh interesting thing and not think about all those people who've died and not focus on all the things that are part of this and and actually uh, yes let's talk about uh if there are new security measures that need to be put in place in labs true but let's also talk about what needs to be done so that should there be another outbreak of something that comes from a lab or from a wet market or from anything that we have uh the ppe supplies set up that we have all of those things that we found out that America was not ready for and that our government knows something to to do about it. Because uh, that's that's really what I think at least as big, if not a bigger question of this is.
2: So for many of us learning a second language in high school or college was not exactly the high point in our academic careers. That especially was true of me. I took a lot of years of Italian in Staten Island and had some amazing teachers, but I just never took it seriously. But it's not too late. I've been using Babbel to refresh and grow my Italian language uh, in anticipation of a trip I plan to take in the next year to Italy. And I cannot say enough great things about Babbel. It's the number one selling language learning app And it's addictively fun and an easy way to learn a language. Whether you're traveling abroad, connecting in a deeper way with your family, or if you just have some free time, Babbel teaches bite-sized language lessons that you'll actually use in the real world. Babbel designs their courses with practical real-world conversations in mind. Their
1: teaching method has been scientifically proven to be effective. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. Right now, when you purchase a three-month Babbel subscription, you'll get an additional three months for free. That's six months for the price of three. Just go to babbel.com and use promo code majority54. That's B-A-B-B-E-L.com, code majority54 for an extra three months free. Babbel, language for life. Oh wait, you didn't see it coming. And that's just it. The COVID-19 pandemic showed us how a microscopic virus could upend our lives and how unprepared our systems, our leaders, and our society were for it. There's so much out there we need to understand. How new genetic discoveries could change our relationship with our own genes, how our addiction to social media changes our brains, or how right-wing extremists are conspiring to take away reproductive rights. Every week, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed, a physician, epidemiologist, and the former Detroit Health Commissioner, offers perspectives on these issues and more and talks to the leaders who are working out new ways to solve them. From Crooked Media, new episodes of America Dissected every Tuesday, wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Well, Isaac, let's transition and talk about your book. And it seems like you've been Everywhere over the past week or two, um, your book has, has really become a bit of a sensation. Let's just start off with what you think the thesis is of, the, of your book. When you look back and you're like, like, the meaning you make from this election cycle, if you were to distill it down to its simplest form, what's our like big takeaway? So
0: The book starts on election night 2016, and it's got these stories of Obama and Biden watching Trump win. And part of the reason why I did that is because nobody had ever gotten those stories before. And I think they're really interesting to see how they're processing it, but also because I think that it reflects a larger process that was happening in America and certainly within the Democratic Party of that sort of holy shit moment. Trump won. And at first thinking of it like, how could this have happened? It doesn't make any sense at all. But then slowly over time, seeing all the ways that the party had been rotting under the surface, what hadn't been going right, the lack of investment in the Democratic Party that goes from Obama on down. And then, also the arc of figuring out what to do about that and all sorts of people figuring out what to do about. It. So when I what I didn't want to do was write just another campaign book. But I wanted to situate this book within that process because I think it's a really important process. And I think the, the Democratic Party now sitting here in 2021 is in a much different place than it was uh, the day after the election in 2016. And the story is not done. This story is done. But it, it is this process of Figuring out what the Democratic Party is going to be and how it fits into what America is in this moment
1: it's interesting. I'm kind of curious when you came up with the idea to make this a book because obviously this you sort of took the beat that you were working on first at Politico and then at the atlantic and and whatever it was initially supposed to be, this is what interested you, so it sort of became that, and I think about how like in 2017 when we were sitting together in New Hampshire I did your podcast and then you followed me for a couple of days and wrote about it. I'm now kind of curious like had you already conceived of the book at that point? Was that were you already kind of writing it in your head? Uh, just curious.
0: So the answer to that is uh sort of complicated, but I'll try to tell you the story of what happened. So I was at the Javits Center in New York for Hillary Clinton's uh, election night party. I'd covered the election not By covering the Clinton campaign exactly, but I was on the Obama beat, so I was covering it through how Obama was campaigning. But then my expectation had been, and I was at Politico then, the expectation was that I – everybody thought Clinton was going to win, including Donald Trump, right? Um, That I would go from being the lead White House reporter uh, on uh, Obama to the lead White House reporter on Clinton, that there'd be a transition of sources and other things that would make sense and it would all – so I was supposed to kind of pick it up that night at the Javits Center. And then by about 10 o'clock at night, I could see what was happening. And I thought, I have to get back to my real job now because I don't know what Obama does now. Like the story is actually now about Obama and Trump. So I left New York in the middle of the night on a 3 a.m. train. By the time that Obama came out and spoke in the Rose Garden the the day after the election, those famous shots of the all the aides like crying. And it, like I was there for that uh, already. That morning after I got Back into D.C., I uh, stopped at home to take a shower and drop off my bag. And I spoke to the editor in chief of Politico and she said to me, so this is going to be great, like Trump. Okay, Uh, (laughs) it's going to be exciting. (laughs) Um, And I said to her, I don't want to do it. I don't want to cover it. And she said, what are you talking about? This is going to be a great beat. I said, it is. It's not a political statement. It's not about Republicans, Democrats, Trump, or Clinton. I was like, I just think, and I swear to you, this is what I said on the morning of November 9th. I said, I just don't want my job every day to be... Sending emails that say, hey, Kellyanne, what did he mean by that tweet? <laughs> <laughs> man,
1: that was prescient.
0: Um, like. um, and and it, just, it seemed to me that what Trump's election was, was really something bigger about what was going on in the country. Right. And that Trump was it uh, was a reflection of that and was. And so my interest became looking at how Democrats and Republicans were adjusting to this new reality and what they were changing up. Uh, Most of my reporting work has been covering Democrats, and so it ended up tilting over time toward Democrats. But what also happened along the way is that I wrote an article that ended up publishing in Politico the day before Trump's inauguration on January 19th of 2017, that uh, the headline, I believe, was Democrats in the Wilderness. And it was looking at, okay, so what are Democrats going to do about this? Right. What do they how do they start to track back? That article got some interest from book agents uh, who started talking to me about, okay, would you want to write a book that looked at how Democrats had screwed things up so royally? And I pushed back and I said, I don't really want to write a history book, but I would like to write about what's going on in this moment. That's much more who I am as a reporter. Now, Jason, let's
1: talk about you uh, always, right? <laughs> Why I mean, was that's it? <laughs> really what I meant. <laughs> I, I meant, you, my, my question was, Isaac, talk about me. <laughs> but no, I think- mean, As we talk then, about your book. <laughs> <laughs> what happened then when I went to New Hampshire
0: with you, and that was, I believe, April of 2017. What was interesting to me about that was that you, in that moment, there was no- reason why people should have been paying as much attention to you as they were Uh, and i don't mean any offense but there's no no reason (laughs) why people should have been talking about like is this guy going to run for president right you just lost a senate race like so what a lot of people lose senate races right but it was i think resonating with people because it seemed different it seemed like okay not just like trump changed how people think about what the resume is to get into presidential politics. But also, like, do Democrats have to do things differently? To go back to that ad uh, with the gun, right? Like, that seemed like, oh, maybe talk about things differently. And what you were doing with Let America Vote was also part of this reinvigoration of, like, grassroots work, but connecting it with donors who could put things those there were a lot of things that actually were connected in my mind to what you were doing there the, the the long answer to your question was I working on it all along I I was then I think by the time that we were in New Hampshire together I had had a couple of conversations with book agents about it but I didn't finish the proposal uh, or sell the proposal until a, a year afterwards but a year afterwards was 2018. So from the summer of 2018, I was working on this. And I think that that part of what comes across in the book is that I was reporting it in real time. I knew I was taking notes for a book. There's a freshness to a lot of these stories and that tries to tell it not as like the way a lot of these books get written where it's like, okay, it's the end of the campaign. Let's look back. And after the fact, See all the things that were clearly so smart or clearly so stupid, but try to get at them and how it looked as it was happening.
2: And Isaac, you you mentioned something earlier, which is you said that Democrats were in a much different place in twenty sixteen relative to twenty twenty. Walk us through that. What are some of the big changes that the party uh, and its supporters and and its infrastructure went through? Like what? What were some of the biggest differences that you saw?
0: I mean, a big part of it is the grassroots. There, uh, there's an early chapter of the book that looks at how this exploded right away with uh, groups like Indivisible uh, and uh, Run for Something, but that also just starts with the Women's March. Right? That's the day after Trump's inauguration. I covered it in Washington. I don't know if you guys went to uh, your local Women's Marches, but when I went, I thought like, okay, like some people will show up. It'll be a thing. Whatever, I'll cover it. Uh, Uh, And I couldn't like I could barely get out of Union Station to walk to where it was. It was so crowded. I never actually got to the stage where all the senators and whatever were talking uh, because there were just too many people there for the book, had a conversation with Cecile Richards, who was at Planned Parenthood at the time. And she says something to me like, you know, if if the people who were leading this, uh, like the Democratic leaders had tried to plan a women's march, it would have taken millions of dollars and who knows how much time. And it just happened on its own. The other thing that the book tries to trace, though, is like what happened as some of the Democratic leaders themselves thought of what to do here and how to approach it. And there are a bunch of dinners that I report on and, and these meetings that happened that were going on with people who are not household names at all, but are really important figures in the mechanics of how the Democratic Party works. Uh, and whether that was, deciding, look, we can't just go scattershot after all of Trump's cabinet nominees. We've got to pick ones to really focus on and attack those to then uh, things that maybe some people would not agree with as much as when they were there were a bunch of them in the fall, uh, winter of 2018. then at this dinner at the Four Seasons in Georgetown, perfect setting that's in the book of trying to say, like, how do we stop Bernie Sanders from being the nominee? Uh, those sorts of things are going on, too. And at the same time, you see a, a reinvestment in the party structure that happens um, that goes from Obama, whom aides described to me as having a sort of benign neglect attitude toward the DNC when he was president, to getting really involved, to making Tom Perez the chair, to then doing a lot of things to uh, himself, work on building relationships with the Democratic uh, primary candidates, and also Tom Perez doing a lot to build up what the party was. The DNC was a disaster when Perez took over. And it's not to say it's the most functional organization now, but it is in much better shape now than it was.
1: I think one of the really interesting things that people will find when they read the book is I'm sure people have preconceived notions and had ideas throughout the Democratic primary for president about whether or not that was damaging or helpful to the prospects of winning the general election. People tend to always think, oh, you know, a primary with a lot of candidates fighting it out, that's going to be terrible for us. I'll be interested to see how people react when they they see it uh, in the book. Because I think when you look back on that period, when you talk about the grassroots and the infrastructure that it built, I mean, that built a pretty big operation. Uh, by having so many candidates in the field. And I
0: think elevated a bunch of people who would not have had a place in politics before. And Buttigieg is the best example of it, as somebody who had no right to be part of the national conversation, but because of the way that the race went, was able to show his own strengths and obviously got himself into the cabinet. But, you know, established himself as one of the, I think, future leaders of the Democratic Party. We'll see what the future exactly holds for him. And it's not just him. Andrew Yang, right, who's running for mayor of New York now, um, he figured out a way through this. Didn't work out for everybody. But some of them, John Hickenlooper, who's a senator now, right? Like that's uh, his campaign was pushed along that he was in the Senate and flipped a Republican seat. It helped uh, him that he ran for president probably and and saw what he needed to do,
1: but I don't think it's just about those candidacies, right? Because, you know, I guess the point I'm making that i that I think people will see reading the book or just looking back at that period is that, You know, people like Andrew Yang, people, you know, all these folks who maybe you're in one part of the party where they they stand for something you don't agree with. It doesn't appeal to you. That's the real difference between a Republican primary and the Democratic primary is that because there's this rich debate of ideas and that there are some different ideas put forward, it brings a lot of people in. You may initially get brought in because you really like uh, Andrew, what Andrew Yang was saying about universal basic income. Well, then it's the question becomes can the party keep you? Can the party keep you in the fold? But if it brings more people into the process, then it can be an overall positive.
0: No, I think that's a good point. It's making me think of uh, two years ago this weekend, there was in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, this event called the Hall of Fame Dinner, which is like the Iowa Democratic Party inducts people to the Hall of Fame for the Iowa Democratic Party. No, it's I've, a fundraiser.
1: I've, I've, um. I've spoken at it. <laughs>
0: right. And then with all all the candidates running, it became the first big cattle call. And it was like hours of candidates speaking. They each had eight minutes to speak. I remember seeing Cory Booker in his car uh, outside of the hotel where it happened. Just like they were timing him to make sure that he stayed. (laughs) But the day of the event, the entire in Cedar Rapids is got sort of one main drag to it there. And that whole drag where it was at the Doubletree Hotel in Cedar Rapids, uh, For blocks, there were each of the campaigns that set up cheering sections and, you know, signs and they had all these different things, light up signs and noisemakers they were handing out what what struck me then was thinking like these people and they're not all Iowa voters. A lot of them were people who'd come in from other states. But these are all people now who were connected, who are going to be much more connected than uh, than they would have been if there weren't all these campaigns to hook on to. Uh, and I remember when in the 2016 race, when it was like. Hillary Clinton was clearly going to be the dominant candidate. I, I did an article about this actually at Politico at the time that said like there was go- there was this worry about a lost generation of operatives uh, because there wasn't going to be such a competitive primary that it does bring people in. But it's not just about the operatives. It's about bringing all these people and volunteers, all these people, like you said, Jason, who connect with it. Like, if you are the kind of person who was not really involved in democratic politics before you connected with Andrew Yang's candidacy, you are a very different type of person And probably than someone who was not really all that involved before you connected with uh, Pete Buttigieg's candidacy or Kamala Harris's or Joe Biden's or whatever. And all of those things feeding into the Democratic Party uh, are the kind of coalition that you need to put together as Democrats, it seemed to me, to win, given that if you look at the polling data, people agree with Democrats on more issues. But getting the voters to turn out to for Democrats to win, that's where the Democratic Party has its problem.
2: Well, Isaac, I want to thank you for joining us. Where can people find your book? I I take it everywhere they sell books, essentially, right?
0: (laughs) Everywhere they sell books, but certainly at your local bookstore, hopefully, uh, and uh, on Amazon. And I tweet out links to it all the time from the publisher page. You can get it that way. But, uh, But it's all over the place. And yeah.
1: The book is called Battle for the Soul. Isaac, before you leave, where can people find you so they can find all these links to the book?
0: Well, you can get me on Twitter at Isaac Dover, and Twitter is the most that I can handle in terms of social media. I'm not an Instagram or TikTok user, and my Facebook account uh, has been dormant for a long time. So Twitter is the best that I can do, and hopefully that'll be enough for for your listeners.
1: Awesome. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it.
2: All right. As usual, we're going to end with grab an ore, Jason. What do we have for our listeners? We have a grab an ore that is an opportunity for people to, you
1: know, come out and be part of a majority fifty four audience. Like this is so exciting. Not only have there been almost no live events in the last year plus, there's never been a live majority fifty four, and we are doing one. We are doing one in Kansas City. Ravi is coming to Kansas City, and we are going to do a get this, free live outdoor taping of the show on June 24th. So that's Thursday, June 24th at Loose Park in Kansas City. Uh, the quote unquote doors open, which is to say we, it's outside. say We start this thing uh, at 7 p.m. on June 24th. We hope that y'all will be there. For more information, you can visit wondermedianetwork.com slash majority54event. That's wondermedianetwork.com slash majority54event. I am so pumped about this. I can't wait to see people and to do this with people there. As usual, you can leave us a voicemail. And, you know, as we get closer to this live event, who knows, maybe your voicemail ends up being the one used at the live event. So if you're in Kansas City, or if you're planning to travel to Kansas City for this, it is entirely possible that you could leave us a voicemail now, show up, be in the audience, and then hear us respond to your voicemail. How cool would that be? 508-687-2589. 508-687-2589. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. You should check that out. Ravi got a haircut. He looks slightly less like a beetle, uh, but still like a beetle. And our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today.
2: Majority54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman and special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners, it's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders, Zachary Carabell and Executive Director, Emma Lucas